Good morning, everyone. We're going to continue through the Psalms of Ascents. And, and even as we're gathering here, I want us to, to try to connect as much as we can to what the purpose of the Psalms of Ascents were and can be for us today. That it's not just something that we read in the quietness of our own time and our hearts and our own space, but that the Psalms of Ascents were, were put together so that it would be the, the rallying cry, the encouragement, the lament, the prayers of a people of God that is proceeding, that is journeying, that is walking, that is traversing terrains and territories in order to meet with God at his temple upon the hill of Jerusalem where his presence dwells. And so as we gather, I really want us to, to think of how then everything that we're doing is in some ways resembling that. That it's not just the missions teams that are sent locally and globally that are on a journey. It's not just the, the people that are traveling this weekend because it's July 4th that are on a journey, but that even as you're sitting here physically, you are on a journey if Christ is leading you. And this journey calls us to be together, rallying around a central message of Christ crucified and resurrected. So a couple of things that, that come to mind as we prepare ourselves for this, that these songs are put together, collated originally for then Jewish pilgrims that are making their way to Jerusalem, primarily celebrate three festivals. There's the festival of Passover, which commemorates the deliverance from Egypt. There's the festival of Pentecost, the festival of weeks, which commemorates the giving of God's word. And then there's the festival of the new year, the day of atonement, which God's people remembers then they need to continue to repent and continue to have soft hearts of remorse towards the God that saved them. You know, these psalms then would be ones in which even as you hear your Bible stories from Sunday school of Jesus as a youngster going with his family to the temple and then just kind of staying there a little bit longer than they thought, they would be singing and quoting these words on the way up there. Later on in Jesus' ministry, as he is traveling with the 12 and the people then that wanted to continue with them as well, they would be hearing these words as they're traversing up the hill towards the temple. So, so these psalms of ascents are familiar to them. These psalms of ascents unify them. And these psalms of ascents, in many ways, are their articulated words and emotions that prepares their hearts, that sends them up the hill so that they're not just going up as bodies, but they're going up as worshipers, desiring and seeking God. They're on a journey. They're not there yet, but they can't wait to get there. And that's where the psalms of ascents find themselves. Now, this is the only one in the Psalms of Ascents, the 15, that is attributed to Solomon. In fact, if you see the breadth of the Psalms, 150 of them, only two of them are attributed to Solomon. This is one of them. And so in this sense, it's a very unique Psalm in that Solomon is connected not only with the building of the temple, the house of God, but Solomon is also always kind of connected with this teaching and giving and sharing of wisdom for how to live. What's the difference between knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is information that's useful and helpful and life-changing. Wisdom is knowledge applied. And so you find that Solomon, his works, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, a lot of things that he has his hands on speaks of how someone 
who is a follower of God and a worship of God can live out the information, the theology, the doctrines, the teaching of Scripture so that they will not only know something true, they would live and benefit from the application of that truth. And so we will find that very particularly in this psalm today, Psalm 127, as it engages in two very specific areas of life. It engages in the area of your work, in your vocation. We find that in the first two verses. In the last three verses, it engages with your home and your family. And I hope to be able to bring us through those two passages, but then tie it all back together at the end. Because what you'll see is that those connections are not as distinct as maybe we make them out to be. That those connections between what we do outside the home and what we do inside the home really meet if we're on a journey with God together in him. They're not compartmentalized. They're not separate. They're not distinct. They're just different, but God is building through them all. And so let's go ahead and look at the first two verses as we engage with this passage. The first two verses of looking at when God builds. The scripture is up there. Feel free to look in your Bibles as well. I'll go ahead and read from my Bible up here from the SV. The psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that he rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You find in this passage two groups of people working. You find that God is working, and you find that people are laboring, and that's the way it has always been. That even when God made people He gave them a task to do, but that at the end of the day, it is God who is working through them, around them, and for them. Well, there's two things that you find that the Lord is actively doing. The Lord is building the house. He is making something here. But the Lord is also watching the city. He's protecting the people. Now, let's shift the focus to the people. What are they doing? Well, the people are the ones that are using their hands and they are laboring to form this house and structure and planning and financing and everything else. They are making it happen on the ground so that something is being built. And then there are people who serve as watchmen that then in their work, they stay awake, they pay attention, they stand their post to be able to observe for any dangers and enemies that may attack their city. Now, this connection to vocation makes a lot of sense for us even in this life. This is just what is right outside our campus, on our campus, but outside the Mac. What you see here is the culmination of God laboring and leading to build a building using people and their resources, making the way, opening doors, providing funds, shaping hearts, casting vision through people so that we can follow him together as a church to then labor as people to actually physically put up this 
building. And week by week, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, it's easy to kind of go by if you come here for church and, and, or other things. You just kind of you drive by by because that's like the fenced off area, you're not paying attention. But it's actually quite a joy to be able to actually see it one step at a time, especially from the second floor. That you take a little walk and you go, oh, wow, wait, that wasn't there last week. Or, you know, that piece, you know, uh, you know, wasn't in place. Or, you know, that wall just got a little higher and my view just got a little less looking out windows. But see, people are building and they're doing it faithfully, but God is leading and God is building and God is providing and God is protecting. See, there are people creating, they're designing, they're demolishing, they're developing this particular project. They're also preserving in that there's a fence to keep us safe. They're fixing it, they're financing it, they're planning for it. But then, internally, there's a lot of wonderful conversation, too, about how we can prepare our people to enter into the building. How we can grow our prayer lives as a church family. How we can connect our congregations across the board. How we can fill that building, not only just with things and finance it with money, but how it can be used for God's glory to build up our people as disciple makers and then to be sent out. And you'll hear more and more of that as we go forward. And as the building becomes more of a physical manifestation that you can't miss or avoid, there's so much more that really is about God and how we can make God the centerpiece of why we're doing all of this. Because unless God builds, the builders build in vain. When we connect this personally, you know, this idea of creating and, and preserving, this idea of building and protecting, and it connects then to really all of us in so many ways, right? In our vocations, in our work, in the things that we keep our lives busy with. You know, you could be a programmer, you could be a writer, you could be a student, a mailman, a doctor. You're doing some element of creating and building with your livelihood, and you're doing some element maybe of protecting and preserving in your livelihood. And so all of this... You don't find that it's mutually exclusive where people build and God does nothing, deism, or God does everything, we can't have a say about it, we don't contribute, we sit around and just accept our fate, fatalism. It's a partnership, both in the work and the pace and the endeavors of life. That being said, Verse 2 points to a particular hierarchy here. It says this, It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. See, what is wisdom is what is useful. What is vain is what is useless. And so you see this phrase, it is vain, it is vain, it is vain, three times in just these two verses. So, so that's the hat that the writer wants us to put on to think, okay, so if God is working, people are working, how can this be the most useful partnership, the most meaningful and effective partnership, the most God-honoring and glorifying partnership in committing our lives, vocations, energies, talents, and priorities while glorifying God. So what is vain? 
Vain is when people build with no deference or no seeking or no recognizing or humility that ultimately God is the builder. Vanity is where somebody attempts to keep and preserve and maintain and protect something without remembering that God is sovereign and in control over all of our life circumstances. And that we seek in ways we can protect ourselves just by the works of our hands, or maybe even by technology, but forgetting that all of those things subject themselves to God in his sovereignty and his power and his goodness. You know, maybe an easy way to kind of think about this is just flip the phrase around and see if it works, okay? So does this make sense? Unless we, the people, build the house, the Lord labor in vain. Never. Never. Or unless we watch the city, unless we do everything, cover all the bases, install a camera in every single square inch of this building and campus, the Lord stays awake in vain. Never. But it's the other way around that the psalmist writes it. That unless the Lord builds, those who build and labor do so in vain. Unless the Lord watches the city, the watchman who stays awake does so in vain. So the hierarchy, the priority here is we labor, we work, we make ourselves useful because God has gifted us with so much in our various walks of life, in our stations. But God is in control. God is the essential. God is the power. God is the resource. And you just have to look at stories that they will be familiar with on these journeys, these Psalms of Ascent journeys, stories that they would know like the Tower of Babel to recognize that when God is not a part of it, you could build it as high as you want. It's not going to accomplish the purpose not only that you want, but that God would easily, simply, by his will, push back and do something different. So then there's two ways for people to work. One in which we work without God, in vain, and the psalmist calls that anxious toil. See, toiling is not bad, but anxious toil. Anxious, anxious toil. Or you can work with God, under God, deferring to God, in the power of God, for the glory of God. And this weird idea comes up of rest in your life. You see, on a physical level, all of us get up. All of us go to bed. Some of us get up earlier than others and go to bed later than others. That just makes you normal. And to the extent in which you're able to get some sleep, sure, none of us can live without sleep. So we are made from day one to connect with the fact that we are finite creatures who need to be physically recharged no matter how strong we think we are. But not all of us rest. All of us need sleep, but not all of us rest. You know, anxious toll is this, is that you're doing the best that you can in your particular work and vocation. You're, you're, you're crossing all the T's, you're dotting all the I's, you're being faithful, you're being someone that honors God in, in your relationships and your responsibilities, but yet you worry. You worry about what you're missing out on. You worry about opportunities that you 
may not have. You worry about a particular status or station. You might be working hard to build something, to buy something, to attain something, and you worry about whether that will make you feel satisfied or that it's as good as someone else's. Anxious toil is being in a family with kids and with a marriage and then wondering, is this is everything that there is in life? You're working hard, you're working to the bone, you're keeping the schedule and rotations going, but is that it? That's it? You're looking elsewhere. And then anxious toil is also where when everything on paper seems like it fits, that you just can't feel satisfied or secure, that you're always wondering what might happen the next day. Now, don't get me wrong. We're called to labor and labor hard and be faithful. This is not a passage that tells a Christian to sit on your hands and do nothing. Again, that's fatalism. But many of us are doing everything we possibly can and doing them well and doing them with a clear conscience and doing them to honor God, but we can't sleep. We can't rest. Our circumstances just seem so overwhelming that there's nothing we can do to overcome it. In fact, sleeplessness is probably one of the telltale signs of anxiety, that there's so much going on in your mind that it's just running at 100 miles an hour that you're in bed, but you're not sleeping. You're sleeping, but you're not resting, and you wake up feeling just as tired and exhausted as even the day before, and then the grind starts again. So of all the things that the psalmist could say that God can give as a benefit and a blessing when you put him first, it's so interesting that he says, he will give you sleep, which is a real, peaceful, recovering, regenerating, recharging rest in him that begins with your body because you know you need it But then it goes way beyond that, that if you could put things down so that your body can rest and you can make time for that, then there's other things that he will teach you to put down so that you can rest. Because unless the Lord build it, the builders labor in vain. And the Lord wants you to find rest in him and rest in your bed and rest with your family and rest with your friendships and rest with your neighbors, and rest in the communities that he has put you in. He wants that for you, because that reminds us that we can't do it all on our own. But you know, the beauty of of what this psalm says is here is it's not like God is berating you for not resting. That's like my parents, right? It's like, no, why don't you take a nap? Why don't you get some rest? Why don't you sleep? It's not like that. And even then, I know they love me, but, you know, it comes across like, hey, just go take some sleep. But the reason why God is telling you this is because you are his beloved. That's what you find at the end of verse 2. And even for me, it took a while for me to realize, it was probably after I had kids, it took me a while to realize that my parents wanted me to rest probably more than anything nowadays. When they see me, they're like, did you eat? Did you sleep? I'm like, okay. It's because they love me. They want me to be okay. It's a gesture of love and consideration. So that's the motivation, is that you're not valued primarily, not primarily by your production, but you're valued 
simply because God loves you in Christ. And if he's in control and you are loved and you are in his house and he is over you, then when it's time to rest, you got to rest. Take a break and rest in him. Rest physically. And that begins by trusting him and letting things that make us anxious go. And the way to do that is not to try to almost create a scale in which, okay, well, if I do this, then I can rest. If I do this, then I can rest. But it's simply God's love drops on one side of the scale, boom, you rest. You're not going to be judged by your performance. You're going to be built up by your dependence upon him that you can rest. You know, this psalm connected to Solomon, it's interesting, um, in 2 Samuel 12, 25, Solomon was actually given the name Jedidiah, which means beloved of Yahweh. This could be why this is attributed to Solomon. But at the end of the day, he did what he did. He rested when he rested because he was beloved. So how do you combat the kind of anxiety that grips you that you can't sleep? So this is not, you know, where, hey, what's wrong with you? Why can't you sleep? What's, just rest. No, no, there's reasons for that. We, we live in a world and a culture and with the pressures that sometimes if we don't think through and we don't build our foundations on God, that it's easy for us to fall into anxiety almost as a re- response or a reaction or as the fruit of our circumstances when things are not in our control. You know, this week we had the earthquakes. See, our buildings, we need to be retrofitted right? To be able to stand. Well, sometimes we're not living lives that are built on truths that will enable us to stand. So how do you combat anxiety? It's not twisting your own arm and just to tough it up and suck it up. In Matthew chapter 7, 24 to 27, Jesus speaks about a wise man and a foolish man. Go and read it for us. He says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell in great was the fall of it. So where do we begin to combat anxiety, our worries, the things that keep us up at night and makes us worry throughout the day and throughout the seasons of our lives? Well, it doesn't happen overnight because even the instruction here is the wise man builds his house on a rock. It's not a house you take out of a box and you put on a rock. Just like what we're trying to build next door, you begin by intentionally building little things and anchoring your lives and priorities on the rock of Christ, remembering who you are as a son and a daughter of our heavenly Father, that your life is not about your performance, but that your obedience is a reflection and an offering to a God that already finds you acceptable in Jesus. So you start moving your thoughts and your priorities and what people say about you and what culture points to you as being valuable, and you start saying, no, that's not true. 
and you start building your house on a rock. One decision at a time, one prayer at a time, one thought at a time of what it means when you are in Christ, first and foremost, that in him you can have rest, that in him your labor will be fruitful, and that in him he is working everything for your good because you are his in Christ. That the Holy Spirit is changing your heart. You're not doing this alone. It's not just you having to generate godly thoughts, but that God is generating a transformed mind and heart in you right now. You start building that somewhere. doesn't matter where you are. Wherever it is that you are, start building your life on that. Notice it doesn't say that so the winds will not come, the rains will not come. No, they're coming. And maybe your house is like this big when they come. But if it's on the rock, it stands. Because it's not you that is strong. So how do you push back against anxiety? By anchoring yourself on someone that is greater than you. When you realize that I can do nothing about this situation, this relationship, this opportunity, this status, this criticism, this judgment, this conflict, I can do nothing except to trust God and be faithful. Then at night, go to sleep. Because you need it. You really do. But then you'll find rest. Verses 1 and verses 2 then tell us that even as we build and watch, even as we create and protect, that we're called to do it restfully, not just to be busy. Let's go on to verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. There's a few things that are revealed in this short passage about the attitudes that God's people can have towards children, toward the little ones, toward the youngsters in our homes. First of all, they're from the Lord. They're from the Lord. Why is that important? Why is it important that we see them as being a gift, a heritage, and a reward? Because sometimes our society portrays children as like a bad white elephant gift. Like you just kind of get them and then you're stuck with them. But in God's plan, they're not just a burden. They're not just a budget line item that you forecast for. And they're not a blockade or a stumbling block to your happiness. Even though oftentimes in the midst of kids in our midst, kids in our homes, it may not have as much happiness in your feeling, in your emotion, in your strength. But at the end of the day, the gift is from the Lord. And so you have to look at the gift giver and go, now what do I do? It's from you. But it's okay, because you'll tell me what to do. So what are children able to be in God's hands? Well, they're like arrows in the hand of a warrior, the psalmist writes. That, that as they mature and as they grow, they become these weapons that are useful, skilled, and developed for God's glory and for 
your home. It's a blessing to have children in of themselves. There's inherent dignity and worth in children at every stage. And the beauty of this is that children, as they are in God's hands and in ours, they become sources of pride and joy. The picture that you get here is kind of imagine, right? So I'm going to use this illustration just because it's, it's very fresh in, in the sense of what we're getting at. So up until this week, you know, officially, LeBron was by himself, right? Now, we tried to get everyone. We can't get everyone. Okay. But we got one guy officially and then a bunch of other people signed. But up until this week, he was standing by himself. All those posters, all those graphics, it's him by himself with some scrubs in the back. But then we got in Anthony Davis. We were hoping to get one more. But Anthony Davis. So now it's the two of them. And then we signed a few more. Right? So now the posters are like full of people. It's like eight people or it's five people, six people. This is kind of an idea that if there's someone, and this is, you know, more specifically, you're looking at a home, you're looking at a, a, a parent, a father, right? Someone comes to a situation in which they encounter their enemies, okay? And it's like one against, sure, all of you, okay? So that, but then what happens is this, that the children in his home, the children of his youth, which means they were really small at one time, his youth, I'm not talking about the children being young, his youth. The children of his youth are now these men that are standing behind him. He comes up here, he's confronted with the enemy, and the picture that you get is, bam, he's flanked with these kids that come from behind him. They themselves are arrows, but if this is a war situation, they themselves have arrows. So the enemy comes, you stand here, and then your kids go, bam, right behind you to back you up. That's pride. That's joy. And maybe you'll go down swinging, but you're going to go down with your family. That's why there's pride and joy expressed in this passage. It's not that your kids are perfect, but that you've raised them. And that as you have been used by God to train them and to shape them and to disciple them and to build them, they will stand with you. Now, I understand that that's not always the case. But see, there's something deeper than just that they are always in great relationship with you. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes you're thinking, okay, well, maybe my kids won't be there. Maybe they're going to run away or maybe. But see, like, where you're calling them to stand isn't always in agreement with you. There's a, a greater stance that they can take if they are loyal, and they are faithful to someone else. There's a greater stance. There's a greater unity that they can have. So I want to see if we can connect the two. This is a quote from uh, the late pastor and author James Montgomery Boyce. He said this, We live highly compartmentalized lives. But the Jew would ask, why is the house being built if it is not for the family? And why are the watchmen protecting the city if not for the families that live in it? Then, as now, the family was the basic unit and most important element of society. The only difference is that the ancient Jew knew it. And we generally do not. 
So where's the connection here? I think many of you could already start seeing the crossovers. But even this reference to children being a gift, the fruit of the womb, how does that connect to our need to depend on God, to build, to create, to protect, to defend, and then to rest? Well, I'm sure I'm not, I'm not breaking any news to you guys, but, you know, I mean, for the most part, children are made when the husband and wife get some rest. You know what I'm saying? Like, if they never get any rest, there's no children. So it starts there. You know, if they're so busy doing their own thing, guess what? There's no children. I mean, up until very recently, that's kind of how it's been. So they need to rest. But even the fruit of the room, guess what? The children look like the parents. They act like the parents. And if we're honest with ourselves as parents, their flaws and sins and everything are probably ours, and we pass them down, okay? So much of role modeling and so much of what we do in the home, the unspoken things, that's what our kids pick up. Our struggles and our issues, a lot of it is passed down to our kids. Now, again, this is not their fate. This is just where they grew up. But that's the fruit of the womb. You can see as well that the lives and the priorities and the, and the passions for parents and leaders of the household is to create opportunities for them, to provide for them, to protect them, to defend them. And that's actually the reason why young parents don't get to rest because they're busy doing all of that. And the younger they are, the less they know of anything, the kids. So you're busy creating and building for them. You're busy protecting and defending them. You get no rest. But we need rest. You rest when you can. You rest in phases. And the last part that really connects with us is that more than anything, if you're a Christian parent, you want your kids to be the beloved of God. More than that they succeed, more than that they get married, more than that they have great jobs, more than that they're good looking, I hope and pray that our deepest heart's cry for our children is that they become beloved of God. That they would become born again by the Holy Spirit. That they would love God with all of their hearts. That they would follow Jesus for the rest of their lives. It doesn't matter how old your children are. That is your heart's burning desire and last wish. If you're a parent. But what can you do? Well, the best you can. But what do you have to do? You have to trust God. It's not okay if you do nothing. If you just bring your kids to church and go, they're going to take care of them in a couple hours a week, well, I mean, you're kind of gambling here. There's so much more that you can do. You should do something, anything, intentional, meaningful, purposeful, to build that relationship, to lead them to Christ, to teach them scripture. Something, anything. 
as much as you can. And then we partner with you as the church to equip you, to encourage you, to support you, to pray for you, and to do our part. So it's not you sitting on your hands and doing nothing. Oh, you know, whatever God does. But see, sometimes when we're not resting in God, these are the responses that we have to our anxieties. We think we're not able. We think it's too late. We think our kids won't listen to us. We think that we don't know the right words to say. We think that they'll reject us. Those are all circumstances that lead to anxiety. But we got to work. And we got to trust God. Remember these Psalms of Ascent? It's a bunch of people that are journeying, right? Going towards the temple. And they're coming from everywhere. They're leaving all kinds of places to celebrate these three festivals. The festivals commemorate what? Passover? The sacrificial lamb over the post to spare their firstborn son that God saved them. The festival of weeks is the giving of the Torah. God breathed his life and his plan and his words into a book. The last festival, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, National Repentance and Remorse. That the journey of following Jesus and repentance and faith doesn't ever stop. You don't just come out of Egypt and you're done. You don't just have a Bible sitting on your bookshelf and you're done. It's a life of continued humility and repentance and following of Christ. These are their three festivals. And even as they were going to the hill, ascending, singing these psalms, they were reminded of what we now often take for granted simply as the gospel. How did God save? How does God speak? What does he call us to do? And don't forget, as they're taking these journeys, they're grabbing these kids with them. It's a mess. They're leaving behind their work. They're losing money. Their traveling plans are much more primitive than ours. That's how they lost Jesus. Anyway. But the point is they went. God first. God's people first. And then let's make this work. No car seats, no cars. Let's just go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go worship God. Let's go worship God. This could be Sunday. This could be Friday. But really, that's the trajectory of all of our lives. Let's go worship God. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. Every phase of life. Because he can do things that we can't. And because all we can do is try. Let's go. I want to close with this. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus exhorts people in this way. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The burden is there. We need to carry it. But Jesus carries us. And as a church, our vision is to be a vibrant church of disciple makers, that that means that we're in this together. That even just a month ago when we had our family dedication, we had four families here. Two months ago when we had our family dedication, we had three families here. As we see babies around us and as they grow up, let's go, let's go, let's follow Jesus, let's go. This is a we thing. This is not a parent thing. This is not 
an anti thing. Let's go. Let's go. We can go worship Jesus. We're going to learn about him. We're going to know him. Let me know you so we can journey together. Let me share with you about God's love for you in Christ so that you can find yourself as one of his beloved. More than anything you can achieve or accomplish, we want that for you. What we are building and planning in addition to what you see is the people. It is you. It is your children. It is your friends. That's what we want to build. So let's work hard and then let's rest so that God does the work and gets the glory. The big idea for today is this. The Lord will build and watch with his beloved. So work hard and rest deeply in his eternal promises. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much, God, for giving us the song that generation sang. Thank you, Father, that it points to you and our need for you, even as we labor hard, God, that our ultimate need and satisfaction is found in your home and in your work and in your labor and in your plan. So we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen the parents in our midst, but we also pray that you would raise the spiritual parents and the spiritual brothers and sisters in our midst, Father, so that we can go towards you together. Father, help us to be reminded of everything Christ has done for us and continues to do. May we find ourselves in him. In Jesus' mighty name I pray. Amen.